This is What the FC. I'm Will Martin. And I'm Matt McCutcheon. MLS is weird, and we love a good story. Let's go. Welcome back to What the FC. You are listening to episode four, where we're going to give you all the information about the structure of Major League Soccer, the financial mechanisms, the way transfers work, the way the roster building works. It's going to get a little complex, but we're going to draw plenty of comparisons and get through it in as simple way as possible. It's going to help you guys really understand the way MLS operates. Uh, Just a little disclaimer before we get started. We had a slightly different plan for what was supposed to be episode three right now, but me and Matt were sitting down looking at it and just decided you guys aren't going to be interested in this. And we weren't interested in it either. And it just, it just wasn't intriguing enough. So, uh, we went back and uh, changed uh, the episode numbering. So episode two, part one is still episode two, part one, but then episode two, part two, we changed to episode three. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's episode two, the team's part one, and episode three, the team's part two. And now we're moving on to episode four. So we still have our five episode MLS 101 mini series. Okay, so like I said, we're going to get straight into all those structure, financial mechanism questions that a very confusing league to a a beginner uh, is going to have. So hopefully this helps you guys understand the league a little bit more. Are you looking forward to this one, Matt? Yeah, I I definitely am. I think that this is probably the most difficult in terms of the episodes to really get your mind wrapped around. But once you really start understanding it, you'll start having a little bit better understanding of of the league and the direction that they're going moving forward and a lot of the roster rules that they have currently. I know just doing a lot of research and preparation for this episode, I now have a lot greater appreciation for the idea of single entity structure, which we're going to, um, we're going to detail yeah. right after, uh, we conclude the intro, but yeah, I, I think this is probably my favorite and most apprehensive in terms of understanding the heart of the MLS. Yeah, this is some really deep topics here that are really going to help you understand this league and and be a better fan and be a more informed fan. So let's just get straight into it because we've got a lot to cover here, okay? So Major League Soccer operates under a single entity structure, okay? What that means is that the teams and the player contracts are centrally owned by the league office. So each MLS team has a, quote, investor operator that is basically a shareholder in the league. These are what is commonly known as the owners, okay? The owner of each team is technically an investor operator in the league. So MLS controls the revenue um, and the expenses, and they distribute that out to the uh, investor operators. So MLS pays like most player acquisition costs, most player salaries, player benefits, league personnel salaries, travel expenses and insurance, all that kind of stuff. Okay. I know that's a little confusing to start straight off with, but throughout this episode, we're going to continue to explain that. All right. So why would you do it like this under a single entity structure? One, it controls the way teams can acquire players so that teams don't compete against each other for available players and overinflate costs. So it basically kind of keeps salaries and transfers at a more sustainable level. Yeah, and I think a perfect example of the opposite of that in the European market, which is more of a open market, a free trade market, is the recent transfer of Neymar to PSG. I think it was prior to his move in 2017, 2018. Yeah. He, there was only one player, I think it was Gareth Bale, that sold for over $100 million. Right. And, and maybe Paul Pogba, I think I saw, was the, the other person. But yeah. other than that, those were, I mean, already astronomical figures. But after the Neymar sale, there have been somewhere near seven transfers within the last two to three years that have been well well over that a hundred million dollar mark and and i think he neymar himself got sold for like 220 million dollars from barcelona to just a ridiculous fee and so now 
since then, the transfer market has just been out of control and causing a huge disparity in terms of the quality of a player that you can buy for how much money you're having to pay for them. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's exponential growth, right? Because it's not checked or controlled by anybody. So it's just crazy, right? So that's definitely a benefit to being kind of a single entity structure. Don't worry if you can't wrap your head around that completely right now. We're telling you this about single entity because it's going to frame the rest of this episode. So we promise as you go, you're going to understand more and more about this. And we're going to be able to have a really good conversation about single entity at the end. Okay. Obviously, though, single entity is definitely detrimental to players and their freedom of movement and uh, a free market being able to determine their costs like Matt was talking there with Neymar and how he kind of set a new bar for what it costs to transfer a player. Um, So it's definitely detrimental to the players to be under a single entity because they just don't have much freedom of movement. So in order to understand that single entity structure, we need to take a quick high school history lesson. We're going to jump all the way back to your guys' high school history classes. If you had that AP government, AP US history class, you're going to hate me right now. So you guys have all heard of that Sherman Antitrust Act. Basically, all that Antitrust Act does is prevent these monopolies of different companies colluding to keep salaries of workers down. Okay, so in 1984, there was a Supreme Court case that decided something that was very relevant to our conversation here about sports leagues. It was Copperweld Corp versus Independence Tube Corp. Basically, the court held that a parent and a subsidiary company were considered to be a single economic actor and therefore couldn't collude to keep worker salaries down. So, for example, take Volkswagen and Audi. Volkswagen owns Audi, even though they're two separate companies, but Volkswagen is the umbrella company. So if Volkswagen sets a salary rate that Audi then follows, they are considered the same economic actor. They aren't separate companies colluding to keep their workers' salaries down. That's all you guys need to take away from this. Then, Fast forward up to 1996 for Fraser versus Major League Soccer, another court case. This was filed 1996, decided in 2002. And basically, they uh, these players were arguing that uh, the subsidiary companies, the individual teams, and the parent companies, the league, shouldn't be considered a subsidiary and a parent. They were actually different corporations and were basically colluding to keep these players' salaries really reduced and down to stay financially stable. But the Supreme or the court ruled against them and said that the single entity defense of a parent and subsidiary company applied to a to Major League Soccer in terms of a league office being the parent company and uh, individual teams being the subsidiary companies. Right after that court case was decided, Major League Soccer nearly collapsed, which we've talked about in previous episodes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Tampa Bay Mutiny, Miami Fusion, both folded. There were three ownership groups that owned eight of the teams. That's never a good situation, which just caused Major League Soccer to double down on their single entity defense in order to keep costs down and keep their league financially afloat. Exactly, because they probably couldn't afford to have any more teams going down and acting too independent on their own agenda and so they needed everyone to lock down double down and stick it uh, together right so that quick little history lesson there gives you the background on why the major league soccer league office is so defensive about the single entity structure so because they have this single entity structure that means the league office can set rules for each individual team on how they pay salaries, how they acquire players, how much they can pay, how many players they can have, all that kind of stuff. Almost everything important. Almost everything important. So now we're going to give you guys everything that the league sets down that each team needs to follow. So roster rules. You can have an active roster in Major League Soccer of 30 total players. Okay, You've got a senior roster that's got 20 players, roster slots 1 through 20. You have a salary budget. In 2020, it's 4.9 million. It's going to increase to 5.21 million in 2021. For a single player, the maximum salary budget charge is $612,500. So guys, all this means is you've got 20 players. You've got 4.9 million to spread between all those players. You can't go over 4.9 million in salary for your 20 first 20 players and the most you can pay a single player is $612,500 okay then you've got a supplemental roster 
of 10 players, they don't count against your uh, salary cap. And uh, they're making like either the senior minimum, which is $81,000 or the reserve minimum, which is $63,000. So uh, can kind of go from here to there on that. Uh, but the, importantly, those last 10 players don't count against the cap. Yeah, don't worry about them. Okay. So does that make sense, Matt? Good yeah, takeaways yeah, yeah, there. Yeah. Okay. So how much do these players make on average given this salary cap, right? Okay. So according to the MLS Players Union, the average MLS salary is $411,926. Wow. That seems pretty good, but that is definitely no. skewed. No, yeah. Definitely skewed because the median is only 179000 Yeah. And over a third of the league, which is 238 players, make less than $100,000. Okay. Wow. That, that's pretty like remarkable considering the fact that, what is it, Messi makes $700,000 or a million dollars a week compared to these people who are making half of what he makes in a week? I mean... There's obviously a disparity in terms of why Messi deserves to get paid that much. But yeah. even if you look at an average player in the Premier League, they're going to be making probably around 100000 to 150000 a week uh, compared to 100000 a year for all 238 of those players in MLS. Yeah, exactly. So it seems super simple, right? You've got a salary cap of uh, $4.9 million and you have 20 players to fit under that salary cap, and you can't pay any of them any more than $612,000. Guys, I wish it was that simple, because nope. that would be super easy to follow. But we have exceptions. Rules are made to have exceptions. So first, you've got the designated player rule. The designated player rule allows each club to acquire up to three players whose salary will exceed that budget charge, that that cap charge of $612,000. And basically the club bears the responsibility for paying them that, that much money, okay? Mm-hmm. So you can pay, if you qualify a player as a designated player and you're paying him say $3 million a year, he's only gonna count as the max cap charge, $612,000. But you're on the hook for paying them all that money. Okay. So it basically gives you a mechanism if you want to bring in Zlatan Ibrahimovic Mm -hmm. and pay him $7.2 million a year, which is what they paid him in 2019. You can do it, but it's just a huge disparity between these designated players and then the rest of your yeah, roster. Yeah, so I would not want to be in that in that locker room probably if, you know, you're you're sitting next to Ibrahimovic who's making 7.2 million and you're working just as hard as him and you might not have like that European success and you're getting paid what he makes in a week. Yeah. for an entire year, you know, crazy, crazy money. But uh, this designated player rule was first instituted in 2007 so that the LA Galaxy could bring David Beckham in because under the rules back then, it was like I said before, you just had the cap and you had the max cap charge and no one could be paid above that. But if they wanted to bring David Beckham in, they're going to have to pay him more than that and mm-hmm. they needed a new rule. So yeah. this is kind of often referred to as the David Beckham rule uh, and they paid him a couple million dollars at that point and it's really taken off since then. And I mean, really, it's allowed the league to raise their profile by bringing in these huge players like David Beckham, like Zlatan Ibrahimovic or high quality players like Josef Martinez, who won the Golden Boot and MVP in 2018 for Atlanta United, or Carlos Vela, who won the Golden Boot and MVP in 2019 for uh, LAFC. So it just allows you to bring in those just top tier elite players while still being able to have that salary cap. Yeah. And and so if you were a GM, like what, what strategies, I guess, would be best in terms of utilizing DP? Because I know historically there have been names of MLS being a retirement league. So why why historically do you think that there there have been just older DPs or is that is that kind of changing? It's definitely changing. Uh you did see for a while the trend was to bring in this these older DPs with uh big European pedigree, big names, people people that are going to come in and fill your stands, but that's really changing and a lot of that was on the league introducing a rule in 2011 called the young designated player rule. They're trying to encourage clubs to become more selling focused. So if you bring in a DP level player that is 23 years old or younger, his cap charge is going to be way below 
uh, anything else. So take the Zlatan Ibrahimovic example. He was getting paid $7.2 million, but for their cap purposes, was getting counted as $612,000. Mm-hmm. If Zlatan had been 23 years old, he would have only counted two hundred thousand dollars against their cap, and still, and still getting paid, and that still getting seven, paid that seven point two million dollars, wow. which is a big difference when you're talking about building a roster and generating that cap space for yourself. Which our NFL fans and our NBA fans and our American sports fans are going to know a lot about cap spaces, a huge, big buzzword. Huge. So we're going to take a real example, Miguel Amiron. Uh, he was signed as a twenty-three-year-old and had one year where he played under this reduced cap charge of $200,000. Okay. And he was probably the best player in the league. And he was only counting for 200000 against their cap. They were, yes, paying him, but in terms of their cap, he was in counting way less. In terms of what other players that they could add to add their to roster. It, right, exactly. It, it enabled them to bring in these huge players mm-hmm. that, yes, they're younger, so they probably have a higher risk. Yeah attached to them so major league soccer needed to give teams an incentive to bring in these younger players who have a high risk but they could eventually flip them atlanta united brought miguel amiron in for eight million dollars flipped him for 21 million to uh, newcastle wow so they did okay there because they got quality on the field and (laughs) and the uh and the the profit off of it right but that is what Major League Soccer is wanting teams to do. They're wanting them to bring in the Miguel Amirones of the world mm-hmm. and flipping them because that raises the profile of Major League Soccer. So that's the thought process behind the young designated player rule. One team that's really utilizing the young designated player rule really well is LAFC. Mm-hmm. So LAFC's really famous designated player is Carlos Vela. Okay, He's just been unbelievable. He's in his upper 20s pretty typical kind of mold that you've seen major league soccer bring mm-hmm. designated players in still still like a marquee signing in terms of him being under 30 still in the prime of his physical career sure. his legs haven't been shot uh, compared to steven gerrard perlo lampard and other older older dps right uh, but lfc's their other two designated players are diego rossi and brian rodriguez they signed Diego Rossi in 2017 as a 19-year-old. So he played 2018 as a 20-year-old uh, and only counted uh, 200,000 against their cap. He scored 12 goals and nine assi- and got nine assists that year. Uh, Vela, for comparison, scored 14 goals and got 13 assists that year. Wow, and, and Vela, I'm assuming, went against the cap 625,000? Exactly, and uh, Diego Rossi significantly less against the cap, but very similar production numbers. At 2019 as a 21-year-old, again, reduced cap charge. 16 goals, 7 assists. Granted, this was the year that Vela went off for 34 goals and 15 assists. Pretty but much doubled everything. Exactly. So Diego Rossi's just been a bit overshadowed by him. Uh, and then they recently brought in Brian Rodriguez as their third designated player. Um, he's currently a 20-year-old, and he scored 2 goals and, seven, and added 7 assists this year. So they're really going after that model that Major League Soccer is wanting their teams to do by... Yes, we want you to bring in players that are in their prime and players like Carlos Vela that are going to just light the league on fire as designated players. But we also want you to bring in these young designated players that are high risk, high upside that we can then sell on to Europe and raise our own profile and help you make profits and help you reinvest in your own team. Yeah, and I think that not only is that good for financial aspect of having someone that can really bring in that clout like Carlos Vela, but also in terms of the amount of pressure of, of having that DP tag put on, put on you, having someone like Carlos Vela, I think that he can deal with that pressure a little bit more because the pressure of, of playing for these huge clubs that he's played for in Europe. I mean, he played for Arsenal and Real Sociedad, I, I believe, and other teams in Spain. He can really handle that pressure, whereas a 19-year-old coming to the U.S. and having that DP tag put on him, you're going to be having so much pressure on your output and and luckily he he might have not have like the limelight that vela has but he can still put out those numbers quite comfortably because he's not having to really really have that pressure to put out those 34 goals or whatever that vela had right exactly and because he's only coming in as two hundred thousand against the cap it is a uh, it reduces some of that risk because the general manager can then have a bit of room to bring in some depth players. So if he brings in this big DP and he doesn't perform, he's maybe got a couple depth players that can come in and salvage the season a little exactly. bit for him and reduces that risk. 
okay? Don't worry, guys. That's not the only exception to these roster cap rules. Yes, there are more. Let's talk about allocation money. You've got two types of allocation money. This is basically money that is available to a club in addition to that cap charge. All right, you've got general allocation money and targeted allocation money. Let's talk about general allocation money, commonly known as GAM. You're going to hear us say GAM, GAM, GAM a lot. That's that's what this is, general allocation <laughs> money. All right. Each club every year receives $1.5 million in GAM. Basically, all you need to know about GAM is it is allocation money that can be used to buy down a player's salary cap charge. Okay, So say you've got a player that is earning $712,000. The max cap charge is $612,000. You can use $100,000 of your $1.5 million GAM to buy him down to become cap compliant. Okay. That's okay. that's all that's all this is used for. It's just a salary cap mechanism so that players can earn a little bit more than that max salary cap charge while still getting under that cap number for like the cap reasons. Yeah, and and probably also so that they can save those DP slots for people that aren't going to be making $700,000 a year but rather 7 million like Zlatan and so that you can really have those high profile names, but also have a good like middle level profile player that's exactly. not going to cost you as much. Yeah, exactly. And importantly as well, GAM is tradable. So oh, if wow. you're if you're trying to get a player from another MLS team or you're trying to get something, whatever it is from another MLS team, you can trade some of your GAM. So you'll often see trades and in, in, in deals in Major League Soccer that have GAM attached to them. So if you need 200K in GAM, to get this player bought down and become cap compliant, you can engage in a trade with another team to receive that 200K of GAM, okay? On a note of what you were saying there, this is about how GAM is how you get middle-level players so that you don't have to spend a designated player spot on someone yeah. that's only earning $700,000. The league wanted teams to be able to do even more of that and really fill out the middle of their roster with more quality elite players, so they introduced targeted allocation money. I believe it came in in 2017. Basically, this is operates almost the same as GAM, but it's discretionary. Teams can decide to use it or they can decide not to use it. So uh, in 2020, you can spend $2.8 million in targeted allocation money or TAM. This can be used to, again, buy players down below that $612,000 cap charge. Uh, but it is really intended for those people that are earning a little bit more than that $700,000. You're looking at those guys that are earning $1.2 million, $1.3 million, $1.4 million, and you can use this to buy them down, and they're considered a TAM player. Okay. That's how that works. So let me give you guys an example of the impact TAM has had on the league. Very recently, Inter-Miami bought Blas Matuidi, okay? French international midfielder, most recently paid for Juventus, very big name in the world. This is an elite class player. And it was announced that Miami brought him in. Normally that comes with a lot of fanfare, but if Matuidi had been a designated player, he would have been their third slot and they would not have been able to bring in any more designated players. And Miami really needed a number nine. They really needed a goal scorer. And so everyone kind of blasted this move initially because they were just thinking, why are Miami not going to get an elite number nine? Why are they buying another midfielder? They've already got so many midfielders. But then a few days later, it was announced that Inter-Miami actually got Blasma Tweedy on a TAM deal. So he must be earning probably in the low million dollar range, 1.2, 1.3 million dollars, probably something like that. And they bought him down with their TAM, which importantly meant they still had an open designated player slot and they just went out and signed Gonzalo Higuain wow. and got their goal score. And now the perception of that deal is very different. That Matuidi deal is a just very astute deal by their general manager to go get an elite player and not have to spend a designated player spot on them. So you still have that space to go get Higuain. So they could just stack their roster with, with a lot better players. Exactly. The whole point of GAM, and especially TAM, is for you to be able to 
avoid that huge drop off in quality between your designated players and the rest of your roster. You want to be able to build a much more even roster than that. You don't just want one or two players on each team just carrying it and then low-level players everywhere else in the field. You want a better even spread of talent, and this is what GAM and TAM do. Gotcha. You guys following me so far? I mean, MLS... We warned you at the beginning, it is an insanely complex league when you start talking about the finances. But kind of in summary, you've got your salary cap charge, $612,500 per player. You can spend up to $4.9 million. Then the exceptions to that rule, you have your designated players. You can have three of those. You can pay them whatever you want, and they're just going to count $612,000 against your cap. And then you've got GAM and TAM, which can be used to buy players down below that charge. There's your summary. That is the meat and potatoes of how a roster is built in MLS to get cap compliant. What do you think, Matt? I mean, I, I find it so interesting. I, I'm just picturing all these GMs in their office playing like two games of chess at the same time with their left and their right hand because <laughs> not only are you having to make sure that your squad is cohesive in terms of do they fit with a playing philosophy, do they fit with a managerial style, are they going to be good sellers of shirts, are they going to get butts in the seats for, for the games, but also are we going to be able to pay them probably a little bit less important because all these teams have very wealthy owners, but more importantly, are we going to be able to pay them legally? And how am I going to be able to maneuver these names on my list of salary to be able to, to bring that high level, but also for qualifying underneath that cap price. So it's really, really fascinating. I would love to to have like a in FIFA a career mode of where you're a manager or a GM for an MLS club because it is just next level. It, so it's so difficult. So right? difficult. Yeah. So insanely difficult. And what do you think about the league introducing mechanisms like targeted allocation money, which is a very new addition to the league, having been brought in in 2017, trying to build out the middle of that roster? They're kind of loosening the financial reins because TAM again is discretionary, so teams can decide to spend TAM and they can decide not to spend TAM, which is probably widening the gap between your Seattles and Atlantas and LAFCs uh, from your kind of Colorados and lower spending teams in the league. What do you think of the league trying to slowly introduce that rather than just taking the reins off completely? I appreciate the fact that they provide a structure for where if a team wants to spend money that they can, but they aren't necessarily going to get as punished for it so that you can still keep some rigidity, some structure to the league. There's obviously going to be some disparity in terms of level of play, like you said, but it brings up the competition a little bit higher for these owners to really have to focus and and pay a little bit more attention because initially the MLS after 2003, having the three ownership groups owning eight of the teams, I mean, of course, they they weren't going to be as incentivized to spend as much money. And so after going through that struggle and hard knocks, the the league is now into a stable place where investors are going to be a little bit more confident and splashing the cash and not going to worry that their investment is just going to collapse like it would have in 2002 or 2003. So I'm, I'm in favor of it. I think that it's more wise than just opening up the floodgates because the original investors, it's only been 15 years or 20, 20 years um, almost since that happened. So the original investors aren't probably going to have as much confidence to just be like, all right, yeah, I'm just going to free reign on this. We're not even two decades removed from the league nearly collapsing and us only having three ownership groups for an entire league. Not even two decades removed from that. That was 2003, 2004. So yes, very, very good point. Let's talk about how then, given all of these rules for how you get cap compliant, how do you go get players? Don't worry, there's more rules to go over right here. So let's talk about when you can buy players first. Matt, before we go into the MLS transfer windows, tell me a little bit about how the transfer windows work in Europe and pretty much everywhere else in the world. Yeah, so pretty much everywhere else in the world, the transfer window opens in late June, early July, depending on the the league. Of course, there's always little 
idiosyncrasies, I guess would be the word, between leagues like the Premier League and La Liga in Spain. Yeah. So typically all the big five open up in June and early July and close at the beginning of September. So they're already a month into the start of their season when they can still buy in like those last players. So for example, this year was a little bit weird because of COVID and everything pushing right. pushing those dates back. But even though we've already been five games or a little bit more or four games into into the season, Arsenal were able to buy Thomas Partey on the last day. And so we're right. you're you're still able to to add players to your roster. Yeah. But mostly it's a it's a summer transfer window. Yes, a Over summer the transfer is when window. most of the players get bought. Yeah, and, and no no players are at the club playing for the club. They're on their summer vacation or playing international games. So it, it just provides a time for the front office to really, really focus on who they want to acquire and what their vision for the team is moving forward. So they can just focus on the business side of it in the summer. And then in the fall, winter and spring, they can just focus mainly on how competitive can we be. Right. And then there's a secondary window that opens up in july or not july in january just called the january transfer window which was installed just so that people if they acquired a bunch of injuries in the season that they can buy some supplemental players typically you don't see as many of the big transfers happening there that's more of just squad bolstering yeah exactly so you've got the summer window with all the big transfer activity and then just like a couple additions in january So MLS, as you guys know, the season runs from spring through the summer and into the fall. So that doesn't really lend itself to a primary transfer window being in the summer like in Europe. So their transfer windows are a little bit different. Their primary transfer window is February 12th through May 5th. Okay, so that takes you before their season starts and about a month into their season being started, just like it operates in Europe, just at a different time frame. You'll see a lot of moves at this point. This is when the vast majority of players are transferred in, transferred out, all that kind of stuff. And then you've got a secondary transfer window in the middle of their season, just like the January transfer window for Europe. It's July 7th to August 5th this year, about a month long. Again, you're not going to see a ton of signings in this secondary transfer window, but how it differs from Europe is that the signings in this secondary transfer window because it aligns with the primary transfer window of Europe, this is when you see those huge DPs coming into the league, those huge designated players and the elite signings. Yeah. And, and, and for instance, for to gauge how much money is spent in the summer transfer window in Europe in England alone for the 20 teams in the English premier league in 2019 in that summer, they spent over $1 billion dollars, (laughs) <laughs> one billion pounds so even more than the u.s dollar on just transfers alone and, and so that just gives you an inkling of the buying power of the of the summer windows compared to winter windows when it, it's probably underneath the several hundred million mark yeah, exactly so if you're gonna go get a uh, a carlos vela um a zlatan ibrahimovic those types of guys you're gonna go get them in the summer because that is when those elite European teams are selling. It really has a huge impact sometimes, that secondary transfer window, on a team's season. You can go back to 2016 when the Seattle Sounders acquired Uruguayan international Nico Lodero from Boca Juniors. Uh, They got him on July 27th, right in the middle of the season. This also, when they got Lodero, it also coincided with Siggy Smid's departure uh, and Brian Smetcher taking over for him, which we've talked about on a previous episode. So right around the same time they bought Lodero, Smid left and Brian Smetcher came in. But before they bought Lodero, they went 6-2-12. and 12. That's six wins, two draws, 12 losses. That is solidly outside of the playoff picture in Major League Soccer. Then they bought Lodero, finished the season, eight wins, four draws, two losses, clawed their way into a playoff spot and went on to win their first MLS Cup in franchise history over Toronto FC in penalties. Ladero came in that year and just hit the ground running, scored four goals in the regular season, scored four playoff goals, and led them to their first MLS Cup, having been with the team for like four months. 
Jeez. So you can bring in these landmark players and just shift the course of your season right in the middle of it. So this secondary transfer window is huge. Yeah. In 2018, DC United uh, acquired English forward Wayne Rooney from Everton on June 28th. Okay, so again, right kind of in the middle of their season. That year, DC United was uh, building their new stadium, Audi Field. So they had to start the year with 12 of their 14 games on the road while Audi Field was being finished. So pre-Audi Field and then pre-Wayne Rooney, they only won three games. They were very outside the playoff picture. Then they bought Rooney and moved into Audi Field at the same time. They finished the season with 13 wins, three draws, and four losses from that point. They went on a 10-game unbeaten run to finish the season and claw their way into a playoff spot. So wow. they used that shift to a new stadium and they bought a huge superstar to coincide with that shift and put butts in seats. And then Rooney didn't only put butts in seats, he absolutely tore it up on the field. Mm-hmm. They unfortunately lost in penalties in the first round of the playoffs, uh, which was unfortunate given just how magical that late season run was for them. Uh, but Rooney just came in and raised the level of everyone around him, most notably Lucho Acosta. They had this whole thing. Uh, Lucho Acosta was their number 10. Rooney was their number nine. And it was like this Lucha Roo thing. That's what everybody called it. Oh, it very was, cool. But they had such great chemistry but this secondary transfer window can really, really impact positively people's seasons, which is very unique to MLS. Exactly. The January transfer window doesn't have that kind of impact on European teams. No, not at all. I mean, I can't think of any remarkable instances of where a January transfer solidified a team's ability to compete in the league. Maybe the closest thing I can think of is when Arsenal bought Aubameyang in January. That's a huge transfer, one of the best strikers in all of Europe moving, but we didn't really go on to win anything the remainder of that season. It was more of, oh, wow, we were able to kind of move up a little bit higher uh, in the league table, but nothing like nothing like D.C. United or um, Seattle. Yeah, uh, just really, really, really crazy. Um, the transfer window puts a, a weird spin on incoming player transfers in MLS. So if you're following your team and your roster doesn't really feel complete after that primary transfer window, never fear. Your general manager probably has a plan to bring in one or two really huge players in the middle of the summer to fill the rest of your roster out and make that final playoff push. That's got to be so stressful as a GM though. Like your your whole planning is in the winter and if you can't get like your big names at the beginning of the season, you're going to have to hope that your cap space is going to is going to be available in the summer window, but your team's not so bad that you're too far gone and can't claw back into uh, into the playoff spots. It's it's just kind of interesting way to picture it. It really really is. So First, as a general manager in Major League Soccer, you've got to worry about these weird transfer windows. Mm -hmm. But you also can't just go buy whoever you want whenever you want. You've also got different player acquisition mechanisms that the league sets down as a single entity. Okay, Some of these are pretty weird. You ready for these? So... First up, you've got the allocation ranking list. This is a list of select U.S. men's national team players, U.S. youth national team players, uh, and former MLS players that are coming back to MLS after leaving for a transfer fee that was over $500,000. This list is updated once a year, and clubs are put in order on the list. So say you finished last in 2018. During 2019, you're going to be number one in the allocation ranking. So if one of these players that's on the list, uh, U.S. men's national team player, U.S. youth national team player, big transfer fee player, is coming back to MLS or coming to MLS, if you're number one on the list, you have first shot to sign them. Wow. That kind of... That kind of reminds me of the way that the NFL sets up the the draft for like you had the worst team. It's almost like the that year yeah. prior, but you aren't even guaranteed that that person really wants to to go to your to your team as well, which right. is very weird. So it sets up these weird politics on the ranking list because you can trade your ranking spot. So say the New York Red Bulls are 16th on the ranking list and uh, Colorado Rapids are number one, and there's a big national team player coming back. Say uh, Christian Pulisic's probably on this list, right? Like, however unrealistic it is for him to come to MLS right now. Say he's coming back, and Colorado isn't looking to sign him, 
and New York Red Bulls know he's not going to fall past 14 more teams to get them to 16. Mm -hmm. They can send some GAM. They can send some future considerations to Colorado to swap spots and be able to get Christian Pulisic when he comes back to the league. Really weird. Really, I mean, it is like the NFL draft when they can trade draft spots if they really want that exactly. person yeah. and that kind of stuff. And and I'm sure that Trevor Lawrence really does not want to get it to the Miami Dolphins or whoever is <laughs> going to finish last in the NFL this season. Exactly. So that that's a a really odd. It's not used extremely often because this this player this player list is a pretty select list of players. Okay. So you're not seeing this happen constantly. This is when huge names come back uh, and they're subject to the player list. Like this happened to Jermaine Jones when he came back to the league and that kind of stuff. Okay. So yeah. not as often, but definitely kind of a weird thing. You've also got the super draft, which is the MLS uh, version of the draft. Um, this is like four rounds, 75 player selections. It's mostly NCAA college seniors. Same thing, orders in the reverse order of the previous year standings. Honestly, this used to be a major roster building mechanism. Peter Vermees, most notably with Sporting Kansas City, did an amazing job in the late 2000s building his roster through the Super Draft and just getting some really high value players. It's just not anymore, though. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just the reality. And like the most MLS, of these players aren't even getting signed. They, they aren't even actually making the team after they mm-hmm. get drafted, unless you're like one of the top three players selected. Yeah, that's a lot different than the NFL because you have all these rookies signing these rookie guaranteed contracts where they're making something like, I think Tua made like $12 million guaranteed or yeah. on his rookie contract without even playing a game. But I think the MLS will definitely still try and hold on to this by highlighting Jack Harrison, who got into the yeah. league through the Super Draft. But he is literally the only anomaly he's within the, he's recent the ex- history. He's the exception to the rule, yeah. So it's definitely don't get too invested in the super draft. It's not going to impact your team that much. Um, you can also sign homegrown players that you develop through your academy. That's pretty straightforward. There's nothing crazy about that. And then if they don't fall into any of those above three categories, so if they're not on that allocation ranking list, if they're not in the super draft, and if they're not a homegrown player, it all comes down to the discovery process. Okay, guys, this is one of the major things that major league soccer can do as a single entity to reduce that salary competition and that transfer competition between its teams and not inflate those salaries. So if you're wanting to sign one of these players, you have to place the player on your discovery list as a team. Every team can have up to seven players on its discoveries list. Basically, like my scouting team is down in South America. They see this young Uruguayan and they're like, we think we could maybe get him in the next two or three transfer windows. We need to put him on our discovery list so that we're the first team there. Because if multiple teams want to sign that young Uruguayan, whoever put him on their discovery list first gets first shot at signing him. Okay, so it's like the weird sports business example of playing dibs or or calling dibs on something. I mean, you basically just, I've got dibs. Yep. And the only way that you can get rid of my dibs is if you give me fifty to seventy-five thousand dollars worth of game. Yep, and that is so. If I so say I'm the uh, say I'm Orlando City. Uh, this as an actual example, this just happened. I'm Orlando City. I want to sign Alexander Alvarado. They recently just acquired him from an Ecuadorian side. Um, but Real Salt Lake, Matt over here, put, called dibs on him. They yeah. they got him on their discovery list first. So RSL didn't really want to buy him. They didn't want to make an offer to him at that point. So Orlando had to cut a deal. Um, and I had to send 75000 of my hard-earned GAM over to RSL just for the shot at negotiating with Alexander Alvarado. Uh, luckily, they were able to bring him in. But I mean, imagine if I paid you 75000 in GAM and then hadn't gotten Alvarado over the line and, and just wasted 75000 for discovery rights. The thinking behind this is you don't want two MLS teams bidding up the price for one player and thus inflating costs, inflating salaries, inflating transfer fees. This is one of the major arguments from a league standpoint, from a perspective of the league, to have the single entity structure. Because otherwise, maybe Orlando and RSL are trading bids back and forth for this Alvarado kid, and it just artificially drives the price up because two clubs happen to want them. I guess not artificially. I guess that's more of a free market, which is what the players would argue. Yeah. Um, So, you know, you can see the argument going back and forth here, right? Um, But it definitely has a a lot of politics. The process works the same for designated players. So if you're looking to sign a designated player, you have to put them on your discovery list as well. But if you're putting a DP level player on your discovery list, the league is 
going to determine if you actually have the necessary intent, means, and ability to sign that player, which basically means like you can't just stick Lionel Messi on your discovery <laughs> li- on your discovery <laughs> oh, rights come list. On, why like, not? You can't just stick him there because no one actually has the necessary intent, means, and ability to sign Lionel Messi. And so the league would look at Real Salt Lake and be like, look, you're not bringing him to Salt Lake City. This is not, you can't have him on your discovery list. Mm-hmm. Like, So just a, just a kind of piece of check and control there. Um, but yeah, imagine the politics of this process, right? Because like you could literally just send a scouting network down and just, if you heard rumors that uh, Orlando was looking at this uh, Ecuadorian kid, so like, let's just put him on our discovery list so we can just get 75K in GAM off of it. Like you could play that game and just call dibs and just make money off of it. Exactly. You don't even have to do anything. You just just put them on your list. Yeah. You just put the person on the list and might get $75,000. I mean, that might ruin a relationship, right? I mean, you, you, as a GM, you want to create good relationships between GMs. And Mm -hmm. if you go and screw a GM over and then you need to come to him and try to have negotiating power, he might say, screw you. Uh, This is the price. I'm not cutting a deal for you because you screwed me over before. Yeah. And and I'm sure that there's plenty of like politics and maneuvering yourself in a way. It's like, oh, no, I really wanted this player. Like, look at my roster. (laughs) I have a lot of deficiencies for this. Uruguayan midfielder <laughs> or, or whatever. Yeah. So it's just yeah, weird. exactly. So it is, a, it is a bit of a crazy thing, but um, so if you see something from your team uh, where they had to sign the discovery rights off of another team, that's what that means. Uh, and that's the reasoning from the league perspective on having this discovery process. Okay. So the dibs process is the, what I'm going to, the, the dibs process. Yes. <laughs> All right. Final thing, guys, final thing. Uh, transfer fees is the final thing that the league can control in terms of the individual clubs. So if I, as a team, sell a player for it and get a transfer fee for him, I'm going to receive 95% of that transfer fee um, and the league gets the other 5% uh, and just takes that 5% from you. Uh, just a little profit profit margin Those for them. greedy there. buggers. <laughs> um, but if I develop the player on my own and he was a homegrown player for me, I get a hundred percent of that transfer fee. So just trying to incentivize that homegrown player um, selling model. Importantly though, when you get a transfer fee as a major league soccer team, the owner doesn't just pocket this money and do whatever he wants with it. Because you are a shareholder in the league, the league can tell you what you do with that money. Cause ultimately they're giving you the money, right? Cause mm-hmm. it all goes through the league office. So, If I uh, say I just sold a player for $2 million, the first million of that, of those dollars goes into bonus GAM for me. I get $1 million more in general allocation money to adjust my salary cap roster and buy some players down and use it to sign some players and that kind of re-sign players and that kind of thing. So I sold a player for $2 million. I get $1 million in GAM. The remaining $1 million I can use to uh, fund the cost to go get a DP has to be a designated player or I can with legal approval I can reinvest it in my club in terms of like youth development training facilities some sort of infrastructure Mm -hmm. investment so basically if you get a transfer fee it forces you to reinvest in the team yeah and and I'm sure plenty of Valencia fans in Spain are really wishing that this was instituted because if for for y'all that don't know the owner of Valencia this summer I, I think was experiencing some financial pressure from the pandemic like many people were within the footballing community and so what what he ended up doing was selling all of their top top players and just pocketing the money and so they sold rodrigo they sold ferran to uh, manchester city they sold parejo and uh, two two rivals as well so he was like i'll sell these players to anyone just so that i can pocket so that i can keep some revenue and leverage it elsewhere in, in some other businesses. But, but yeah, so I, I do appreciate that, that side of it, especially for Colorado Rapids fans so that they can't get screwed over by Stan Kroenke. Right. So just, uh, just know that, right. If your team goes and sells someone for a big transfer fee, there are strings attached to that money that they're receiving uh, and how they can utilize that money. So it's not as simple as, I just sold my DP and made a $10 million profit. Now I have $10 million to go spend on a new DP. 
doesn't quite work like that. There's mm-hmm. different uh, allocations it goes into. So um, just keep that in mind as you look at the transfer dealings of the team that you support. All right, guys, you made it. Those are the basic, and trust me, that was basic. We, we yeah. did leave out some details. Um, we, we cut quite a bit there. That's the basic details of all the roster rules in MLS and the single entity motivation behind how those roster rules are implemented. So I'm curious, Matt, which side you think is better? Do you think the single entity structure is better for a sports league and specifically for a soccer league, or are you kind of anti-single entity? So having now understood the history of MLS, from a business perspective, I definitely think the single entity structure is, is is largely what we have to thank for the fact that we still have a league to talk about in the first place. This so is true. You you really can't be too narrow minded or just um, have such a short frame of mind, a, a short term memory in terms of where it's gotten us today. I mean, I think that it 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 guarantees still the owners and league shareholders. Uh, a less risky investment for the sports teams, which I mentioned a little bit more at the beginning of the episode because because right. there's just more financial stability. It, yeah, it's it's more of a sure and solid guarantee that the teams aren't going to tank like uh, Miami Fusion and Tampa Bay Mutiny. And so the league hasn't gotten quite to a place where they can just vie like the teams can vie for complete financial independence. So there's still a lot of risk. There's still a very competitive sports market. However, as a fan, I, I really do love the idea of a free market because yeah. the the whole idea of the free market originates from the factory owners in England who would hire play, people to work within their factories or, or what have you and play for their teams. And they would do so either legally or illegally before even professional soccer was a thing. So right. um, I think that they they were just in it for the risk to just go out and win it and, and just achieve glory. And so I love it because it's so pure. I, I like to visualize all these billionaire owners, no matter how old they are, as little kids who just never really got to make it and fulfill their dream of, of being a football player or a soccer player. And, and so now that they have the money, they can do whatever they want with it. And it's kind of like a game for them. And, and so I, I love it to an extent, but then again, as an Arsenal fan, I would never want to experience something that Leeds has experienced within the last 15 years of just having very, very toxic owners that are very irresponsible with their money, taking a very historic club out of the top flight for, I think it was 15 years, and just a lot of misery, no winning, four or five different owners in the meantime, and until this year getting back into the top flight. So Yeah, and that's what the single entity does is it does keep these owners accountable because as a league shareholder, they're incentivized that they want the league as a whole to succeed, and they're forced to reinvest in the club through the mechanisms that we just talked about. So Yeah, but on the contrary, you have teams like Sheffield United and Leicester City that if, if that single entity was in Europe, then you wouldn't have those glory seasons of Leicester barely surviving promotion and then the next year going on to win the Premier League. Yeah. You know, so you you, you have these... Because there's so much parity. There's so much parity under a single entity because of these salary cap stuff that mm-hmm. it's great. Your team could win whenever. Like, you could be the worst in the league and within two years turn it around and be top of the league like we saw Toronto kind of do in the 2014 to 2017 era. But you do lose those just awesome underdog stories that are so inherent yeah. to sports. Yeah, exactly. So I, I guess a good good analogy or a good way to put it is that in a free market, it raises the ceilings because you don't have all these caps. You don't have all these salary caps. It raises the ceilings to achieve greatness. It lets you go and just say, I'm just going to send it like Manchester City. I'm going to invest billions and billions and billions of dollars into this team hoping that they turn out good. But then also it lowers the floor of like teams failing and just going into an utter despair and really, really struggling to get out of it. So you have extreme highs as well. 
but then extreme lows that really, really punish you for, for mismanagement. And so for teams like Colorado or San Jose historically or in, within the last five to ten years, it, it really punishes it, or the single entity structure, uh, excuse me, doesn't punish them to where they have a 15 year um, time right. period of not being in the top flight like Leeds United did. Yeah, exactly. And if you think about that from the league perspective is if San Jose and Colorado, if, if there was more of a free market and they just absolutely sucked and had horrible owners, there's no history with these clubs. We, we've got a league that's just over two decades old. Mm-hmm. People are just going to leave it. You need to have that parity uh, to create that culture and create that solid foundation. But you also need to balance that with keeping them accountable and not letting them just be inept and like kind of good and mediocre for a while. Mm-hmm. It's a difficult balance yeah. to strike. And I think you, it's also important to acknowledge in this single entity structure how the players are hurt. Mm-hmm. I mean, like objectively, if you look at it, MLS players are not paid the same as what they would get in a free market in Europe. And sure, you can argue that, oh, well, like just go to Europe and just go play in Europe. But it's not really that simple. I mean, we're talking about humans here that have families and lives in the United States. It's not as easy for MLS teams to sell them overseas because of all these rules. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it, but- it, this does really hurt the players. And I can definitely see why the players are very unhappy playing under a single entity structure. Yeah, and and obviously financially, I, I definitely agree with you in terms of the salary that they're able to make. But but then also, is there an argument to be made that the clubs and MLS, if it doesn't really match that GAM or, or TAM allotment of selling on a player, it's GAM, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so when you sell on a player... They might not give you enough of a profit to be like, oh, I'm willing to, you know, risk that and then try and resell a player. Like, um, what was his name? Shane, not Shane Long. Um, Aaron Long. Aaron, Aaron Long, Long at yeah. uh, Red Bulls has historically had ties with a transfer move yeah. to Europe. But but as far as I know, Red Bulls just didn't want to justify that and, and didn't think that it was worth it for them. And yeah. so it he just got wasn't going to have enough benefit for them. They weren't going to be able to invest that money enough in another player of his level because of the way those uh, funds from the transfer fee are tied to reinvestment in the club and that kind of stuff. Yeah, but also to counterpoint my, my own point, <laughs> my own argument, you still have Leo Messi who yeah. got frozen out this summer. He yeah. wanted to make a move. He did whatever he he. Um, didn't even report to camp for the first yeah. time ever. He's been at the club since he was 12 or something like that. And he wanted to make a move because he wasn't happy with how the club was going. And regardless of being in a free market, his move was not only blocked by his club, but the league. And so you still have in a free market some some power. So I think it's more of a spectrum in terms of single entity. It, it, it's not necessarily, okay, whether the league has full power um, or the players have full power because, I mean, historically now in Europe, the players have all the power. After Neymar's move, it it really just said all the clubs and all the players have all the power. And their agents. And Yeah, especially and their, their agents. agents because, I mean, that's the only reason why Wolves are succeeding like they are in the Premier League because it's really, really hard to come into the Premier League and stay up. So that's why Leicester City and Sheffield United are so incredible. But then Wolves have a super agent who is a main shareholder at the club who can get all these players from Portugal who he's representing to sign for the club for cut rate prices. But yeah. that, that's a different argument. But yeah. I, I do think that it is a spectrum in terms of where the power lies rather than whether or not it's just A or B, black or white. Yeah, you know? I, I think the argument that like MLS should just do away with single entity structure and go to a free market and that's what will make us a huge club in, or a huge league in the world, it just misses so much of the complexity and gray space of this argument. It's Especially when you look at just American sport leagues as well underneath this antitrust law that we talked about earlier, sports leagues under the U.S. antitrust law they're a big gray space. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, they're kind of a hybrid arrangement. I mean, they are competitors. They are separate teams, but they still depend on each other for economic survival, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they are competitors, but 
other competitors in other economic sectors, if they can stamp out their competitors, they're going to succeed more. Mm-hmm. If a, if a sports team stamps out their competitors, they don't have anyone to play against anymore. Exactly. Like they depend upon each other for economic survival. So they're in this weird subliminal gray space between a single entity and not a single entity. They're kind of quasi single entity mm-hmm. structures. And you can definitely see that under U.S. antitrust law specifically. And so it's really, it's not a black and white conversation. It's what do you, the the single entity thing is never going to fully go away with MLS. The question is, do we want to slide it closer to a free market Mm -hmm. while still retaining some of these single entity uh, necessities, I guess? Yeah. And and I think to back your point, I was definitely that, that person who ignorantly looked at the MLS and didn't know anything about the history of the league and, and why it was a single entity. I thought it was like, oh, they're just mimicking um, the U.S. Uh, sports market and right. applying that to, to soccer just because we're American and we're going to do things the American way regardless of if it works. It's totally different, uh, as I learned and I, as I hope many of the listeners uh, also have learned. But I, I think financially speaking... I agree with the MLS and I think that they're doing it right. I think they're doing it correctly. And I, do, I think that they're smart to add all these different loopholes for all the power residing with them. I think that they can encourage teams to spend to an extent that doesn't put all the other teams in the league because they're a unified body under the same umbrella uh, at risk. And so I respect the philosophy, uh, the, the philosophy, excuse me, of the single structure more. Um, but moving forward, I'm I'm really excited to see how the MLS continues expanding because the whole the whole point of becoming a selling league is so that it can increase cash flows that goes back into the teams, which goes back into the league, or I guess it would be in opposite order. It go back through the league yeah. into the teams, and so it, it kind of what I picture in my mind is, is like a compound interest for an investment. It slowly, but surely snowballs into something that's big. And so you, not only do you have MLS positioning itself as a selling league, you have the new TV deal, which will boost cash flow tremendously in 2022, hopefully. Yep. And so that's going to increase that snowball effect by probably 10 to 15 years worth of revenue at, from our current trajectory on our current TV deal. And then you have... I think it actually gets renegotiated right before the 2026 World Cup. Okay. Which yeah. is which is even more impactful because... Yeah, that, that was is, my second point. That is on the eve of the World Cup that is going to be in Canada, Mexico, and the United States, but mostly in the United States. Mm-hmm. So that TV deal renegotiation is going to be huge. Exactly. And, and so I'm excited to see all of this potential for exponential increase in cash flows that we wouldn't have at any other time it's i think it's perfect for the world cup because it's what they want for for countries who host it they want that these countries are creating a sustainable growth in their domestic leagues and using the world cup to really highlight those countries that are hosting it and then leave them in a better place after it's what the the olympics have historically not done (laughs) and and so i'm excited to see and hope that not only as a MLS fan, but as a world soccer fan and a World Cup fan, that this will kind of shift the trajectory of the World Cup, leaving countries that they go to in a better place because 2022 is not looking promising going to Qatar. No, Uh, but I think I'm excited to see what the league does moving forward to continue to release these financial reins. 2007, Mm -hmm. it was the DP rule. 2011, it was the young designated player rule. 2017, it was targeted allocation money, right? Like, so what's next? What's going to be the next thing that they allow owners uh, to invest in? Yeah, and and honestly... And and loosen the reins a little bit more because it's going to continue. And at what point are they going to stop? And at what point is there going to have to be backlash to fight them to continue to make it more of a free market and then at what point is it the right time to stop it that's the question yeah i mean it's as i think it's as long as they're useful because with the english fa and the english football league they, they historically held the reins of the english premier division what what is now the premier league and they they were really slacking the english football in the 70s and 80s was is considered the dark ages they were banned from european uh, games for five years and Liverpool being six years because of hooliganism 
yeah. really, really outrageous fans. Um, so the the teams weren't ensuring a safe environment, and then the stadiums themselves weren't regulated, and so the structure, similar to the MLS, wasn't functioning well in terms of providing the teams uh, a good place, a good structure to play in and be profitable. They were also historically scared of TV deals. And so they thought that that would affect the stadium revenues on match days. Right. And and so that obviously proved to be very wrong. And so Arsenal and Man United uh, chairman looked at the American structure of having these big, glamorous sports leagues that had all these broadcasting deals, had all these sponsorship deals, and really just told the FA and the English um, Football League, yeah, we're, we're going to do this on our own. We're like, y'all are not pulling y'all's weight. So I don't think the MLS is anywhere near yeah. that that idea. And, and thus the Premier League was formed, right? Out, yes. of, out of that. And But the important part for that is that the clubs came first yes. and formed this Premier League. So the clubs still have all the power. Yeah. Whereas with MLS, the league came first, which then formed the clubs. So the league has all the power. Exactly. And that is where the huge, it's huge difference is. Yeah. It's that spectrum that we were talking about. And yeah, so yeah. I I honestly don't think that they're going to need to implement any more big rules like GAM. I mean, there's going to be different talks about... I think with the idea of homegrown players and that's the, a big one moving forward. Um, that, that's a huge one moving forward in terms of producing talent that stays in the MLS initially, so that we stop losing Weston McKinney's and Christian Pulisic's from moving abroad to get uh, and Gio, Gio Reyna, I believe, yeah. to and Chris and, Richards and yeah. I mean, you want them, you want to sell them at some point to let them develop, but you want them to start in MLS. Yeah, we can yeah. say, oh yeah, they're from our academies, but like Brendan Aronson right now. Yeah, exactly. That's and, the model, and, and so. And Caden Clark, uh, who's yeah. popping off right now. Oh my gosh. And, and it's like, you want these players to, to develop and say, yeah, they were made in the U.S., but they played in the U.S. as well. The, the other players haven't. And so fixing that, I think, is going to be a big, big point for them. But I think that with a new TV deal, the GAM and TAM are only going to increase as a result of that because they've been in- increasing slightly yeah. every year in terms of the allocation money. And the salary cap's only going to continue going it, up as exactly. well. Exactly. Yeah. And so I think that, that that is what's really going to be a tipping point yeah. in the future for the business model of the MLS to start competing a little bit more financially with these other leagues, but also provide a sense of security for the investors to keep on backing it and just grow it really really naturally yeah, and so and I'm, I'm excited after yeah. researching this because i think that mls they although they have their challenges and it's kind of frustrating at times i'm really really impressed and excited about this next decade because yeah. i think this is going to be a defining decade yeah. for, for the league to leave you guys on kind of a positive note right that tv deal is getting renegotiated right for the 2026 world cup and just looking back at history you had the world, the first World Cup that was in the United States that served as the genesis for this league. The next World Cup that comes for the that comes to the United States hopefully means launching MLS even further into the elite leagues of the world. And I think that's all any of us MLS fans can hope for. So, with that being said, this is us signing off. I'm Will Martin, and I'm Matt McCutcheon, and this is what the FC.